Welcome to Living from the Soul. This is your host, Sam Tarode, and today I'm excited to be speaking with Nicole J. Butler. You might not know Nicole's name, but you've probably seen her on TV. She's had small roles in a number of shows, from ER and CSI, up to the recent Netflix comedy Space Force. She also starred in a viral State Farm commercial as the character She Shed Cheryl. Try saying that three times. And in 2020, she wrote, produced, and starred in her own comedy series on YouTube called Sister President. Well, happy impeachment, Nicole. Well, happy impeachment to you, too. (laughs) Yeah, and we've been uh, commenting and watching it all on Twitter. It feels a little helpless at times. That's all we can do. Yeah, yeah, that's that's it. That's really it. And, and, And know that this, this will pass. It will pass. We just need to survive until it passes. What are you doing to hold up? Any, anything in particular? Any practices you're doing to keep your spirits high? Um, well, until recently, I've been working. I've been working through this, this whole thing. Like um, I turned a closet into a voiceover studio. And so the past year has been insanely busy <laughs> for me. And so between that and then the pandemic, because if you, you're busy, like you can't, there's not enough, enough time to sit and just process what's happening, you know, and just feel it, be in my body and feel how I feel about it. It's just been from one thing to the next. Um, I bought a treadmill, which helps tremendously um, because in the beginning I wasn't getting much exercise. I was just, I was scared to go outside, go outside. You know, I didn't know yeah. Right. So walking on my meal helps. And sometimes I just shut down everything, everything, turn my phone off, the TV's off. It's just me in here by myself in the quiet, just so I could hear, you know, the sound of my own heartbeat and, and my own thoughts. That's great. I haven't uh, done as well as you. I mean, working at home, being a writer, I have all this time on my hands. So it's been tough to pry myself away from following the news and Twitter. Yeah. But you can, you can, I'm sure you can feel a difference in, um, you know, we, we want to stay informed on the, the news and Twitter, and, but, but then you find your shoulders up near your, <laughs> up near your ears and you turn everything off and, and go do something else, turn on some music, dance, cook, whatever. And you feel normal again. Mm-hmm. Have you, have you experienced that? Yeah. Even walking outside today, it's a beautiful sunny day. And I thought, wow, the world is perfect in this moment right here. Yeah, yeah. Finding that, ba- finding that balance between being informed and overwhelmed can be very difficult. That's it. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Hmm. Well, where did you grow up and uh, what was your family like growing up? I grew up in Chicago. Um, I'm from the south side of Chicago. Uh, I will, I've been away for a long time now, but I will never not be a Chicago girl. (laughs) Um, And my family, I grew up, uh, there were three generations of us. At one point, there were five generations of us that were were alive um, at the same time. So I grew up with my my grandparents, um, my parents, my grandparents, and uh, my great-grandmother. And they all parented me. So it was like my family was my village. And 
I was fortunate in that um, they, they made me feel safe. They really did. We, my grandfather was a Baptist minister. We were in church all the time, <laughs> which, which I, I, I didn't love being in church that much, uh, but it did give me, give me a foundation. And uh, yeah, well, my my grandfather yeah. was a Baptist minister too, so that must be why we connected. We have that in common. Oh, maybe, yeah, yeah. You get watched a little more closely when you're um, <laughs> a child or a grandchild of a of a minister. And siblings, I have um, I have six younger sisters um, that that grew up in my same household, and then I have a brother. My my parents divorced and remarried. And I have a brother um, who's my dad's son. Um, but yeah, it was a big family and I, I'm the mm. oldest. So I was the one in charge, you know, the one who had to set the example, the one who got in trouble for not setting an example. Often you hear it's the youngest who's the entertainer of the family. So were you the entertainer of your family or did that come later? It came later. Yeah, I was, um, I was kind of the regulator, <laughs> you know, uh, second in command because um, my, my stepfather was at work uh, most of the time. And my mom, I mean, if you got, you know, um, at any given time, she had five kids in the house and you got that many kids, you need some help. <laughs> so, so I, I was the help. I was, I helped. Yeah, no, the entertaining came later, but my family was, was always performing in one way or another. Um, we had a number of musicians in the family. So my home was always filled, filled with music. Um, I was in everybody's choir growing up and that was just part of everybody's church choir. And that was just, you know, it was just, uh, it was just what you did, but it wasn't that I saw myself as the performer that came way later in college. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so where did you go to college, and how did how did that desire to become an entertainer come about? I went to the University of Iowa. Um, I I graduated from high school when I was sixteen, and I I wanted to come to California. I was like, no, I want I want to go. To, I want to find a college in California. I didn't. I wasn't even positive about what I wanted to study, but I wanted to get away from home. <laughs> and my mother said, no, you're still a minor and you have to be somewhere where I can drive and get to you if something happens. Okay. So I ended up at the University of Iowa as a Spanish major. I love foreign languages. And then the closer I got to graduation, the more I realized that I needed to put something with Spanish so that I could get some sort of job when I got out. And I just took all these classes. Economics class, nope, not for me. Uh, business class over here, nope. I took a theater class just on a whim and I loved it. And the, the acting bug bit and uh, my professors encouraged me to continue. Until then, I didn't think acting was a real career for regular people. You know, mm -hmm. you see celebrities and you don't really know how they, they got there. Um, but acting, how do you pay bill, the bills as an actor? I didn't know. Um, but I knew I loved it. And then I met people in the theater department who uh, they were in academia, but they had found a way to make a living at it. So I pursued it. I stayed in school longer so that I could double major in Spanish and theater. Wow. And how did you find out how people are able to make a living from this? Did you find a mentor or someone who helped you move to LA? 
Uh, well, no, <laughs> no. Uh, I didn't even know I was going to move to L.A. when I when I decided to study theater. I just I just knew that I loved it the same way that I love languages. I, I figured I'll do what I want to do. I'll do what, what makes me happy and I'll figure the rest out later. <laughs> um, and I did have a mentor and, and we still we're still close today. Um, a professor of mine, Harriet Pierce. She took me under her wing um, because there wasn't a lot of cultural diversity in Iowa, mm -hmm. at the University of Iowa. I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was culture shock when I moved there from the south side of Chicago. And she was an African-American professor in the theater department. And all the African-American kids kind of flocked to her, you know, because she was, she was the only one that, yeah, I don't think I'm missing anybody. But... Um, yeah, so she would have events at her home for us. It was just kind of like taking care of us so that we didn't just get, get lost in the shuffle because a lot of plays that were put on at the theater department had nothing to do with our, uh, you know, our culture as African-Americans. A lot of times there were period pieces that, you know, they weren't going to cast us in. So she just kept us from um, getting into despair. Like, you know, oh, I can't do this. And I met other people in the theater department who, whether they taught or they wrote uh, plays um, or they went and, went and guest directed in different places, they were doing it. So I figured, okay, well, somebody's doing it, so I, I can do it too. Wow. What was it about yeah. theater that, what did it do to you that grabbed your attention so much? It, it just felt pure. It felt like there's there's a there's usually a, a lot of artifice in talking to the people unless you know them really well or you feel really comfortable with them and you can be honest and be yourself and especially at that time as a young I was like I don't know to early twenties the theater felt like felt like church to me it felt like a place where I could just go and just be and just you know and not worry about a lot of other things that were, that were going on, everyday life things. I, ex I exist, I was able to build something within the world of whatever play I was working on, whatever project I was working on. And it was all hands on deck. We were there to build something, all of us. And um, it, was, it was beautiful in a way that I hadn't found anything else to mm. be. Wonderful. Yeah. And did you just move to LA on speculation or did you have a line up a job first and then move to LA? No, I, I visited, I didn't know, I knew I needed to move to one of the coasts if I was going to make a living at this. And I went to New York twice to visit and I realized I, I can't live here. It's the buildings are right on top of one another. There's too much concrete. People are right on top of one another. I need some wide open spaces and some trees. And then you, I had never been to, uh, lost. I hadn't been to California. I just knew what I saw on TV and it looked, mm -hmm. <laughs> it looked wonderful. And I bought a ticket and I got on a plane and I came here. Now, luckily there were some other students from the University of Iowa, well, graduates who had moved here. And one was a former roommate of mine. Uh, and she said, hey, whenever you're ready to come, I got a couch. You can come and sleep on my couch. So I did. I lived on her couch for about, uh, it was either four or five weeks until I could find a job and find a place to live. 
and uh, and we're still friends to this day, <laughs> which is great. Yeah, that was a long time. Ago. I think there's a there's a stereotype <laughs> that I know I bought into in the past that oh actors aren't that smart or it doesn't take much intelligence to be an actor. But so here you are in graduating from high school at 16, and I've I've definitely learned that acting takes an amazing amount of both intelligence and the ability to memorize and emotional intelligence. It it does it does um, it takes those things and it takes. Some people are gifted from from the start, you know, and, and different that can happen in different areas where you look at a child or somebody who's really young and you're like, how do you how is it that you're able to understand this? Because you have no life experience. How do you get it? Um, I wasn't that way. <laughs> so I, I had to work really, really hard. Writing comes easier to me or more natural to me than than acting does. Um, but that was part of the challenge. It was, uh, you know, okay, there's this thing that I'm intrigued by. I'm really intrigued by acting. I love it. I'm not good at it yet, but I'm going to put in the work that it takes to get good at it. And that's, that, that's what I did. But yeah, you have to have some sort of intelligence to understand what's happening in, in the script to be able to memorize. You have to have emotional intelligence because you have to process the, the written word into emotions and then uh, know how to convey them honestly and have the courage to convey them honestly because sometimes you, 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 you have to portray things that aren't comfortable or aren't acceptable in society at large and you just have to put yourself out there. Yeah, it takes a lot. And I didn't know it at the beginning. I might not have done it had I, I know what it was going to take. I don't know. <laughs> What's it like actually yeah. being on set for you? Because I was a, an extra in a movie one time. I was, I was staying near University of Chicago there in, in South Chicago. And a call came out for extras to scene in a chapel for the movie Proof, the movie Proof with Gwyneth Paltrow okay. and Anthony Hopkins. And so I, I stood in a line with hundreds of other people for hours in the hot sun. <laughs> then we finally, we finally got inside and oh. it was, everyone else pushed their way to the front. So I was in the back seat and didn't end up in the final movie. Oh, man. Okay. I was going to go back and look for you. <laughs> it was a, I thought a grueling experience. Or I thought, wow, these, these actors actually have to work hard. There's a lot of downtime, a lot of waiting. How is that experience for you? Uh, I started out doing extra work um, when I well when I got here I got stuck in, stuck in corporate America for a while um, I I was miserable <laughs> I got miserable enough that I decided to go back to acting class to sharpen up again and then launched my career in the beginning of my after I launched my career I did some extra work just to understand okay what is it like on a set and to be able to watch the other actors uh, and actresses who had been doing this for a long time. Um, that was hard. Being, being background or extra was really, really hard because sometimes people didn't see you as people, you know, see, see you as a person. You were just, it, when they call it a cattle call, it was kind of like they felt like they were herding a bunch of cows, you know, here. Um, folks weren't always nice. There was a lot of waiting. 
in the hot sun, you know, not um, just feeling like an afterthought. And, and it was, it was hard. Um, I found it hard for me. I think I did it three or four times. And if I had to do much more, if I had to do it much more, I don't know how that would have turned out. But luckily I, I did book a, a commercial that made me union eligible, SAG eligible. And, um, and then I, I, shortly after that, I joined the union and I've been working as a principal performer ever since, but I, I appreciate extras and background performers and everything that they do. It's, they're essential, but they're considered at the bottom of the food chain. And it's like, people forget that they're people, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. I've, I've been, I've even been told, you know, I'll, I'll go, I, I'll speak to anybody on set. And I'll see extras, and now I'll go out of my way to speak to them because I, I know what that's what it's like. And uh, in the beginning, though, they wouldn't speak back, and I would be like, you know, I remember asking one guy, "What's going on?" Like, "Hi, you can say hi." They told us not to talk to you, and I'm like, "You can't talk to me, really?" <laughs> like, you know, like, okay, I get it. If they said, "Leave Halle Berry alone," don't talk to her. You can't talk to me. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yeah. Well, what was the process leading up to, say, your State Farm commercial? Was it a process of going through auditions, getting jobs along the way, or is it more about networking and who you know? It's uh, it's all of it. It's 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 all of that. Um, I do audition a lot. I have a, a good team. I have I have a lot of <laughs> a lot of agents and and a, a couple of managers. And they are really proactive in seeking out opportunities for me to go and audition. Now I've been around for so long. Uh, I've been working steadily since 2005. So I've been around a while. Most of the casting directors here know me and um, they often ask for me by name. And sometimes I don't even have to audition. They'll say, hey, I got something for you. I have one that calls me directly and says, hey, are you available? We need you for, you know, X, Y, Z. I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. Um, oh, Lord, I've rambled and now I forgot. The question. <laughs> well, I was asking about the lead up to the State Farm commercial. So what was your experience with the She Shed Cheryl commercial and that gaining a lot of traction and popularity? An audition came in, just like all the other auditions, and I didn't know what a she shed was, and so I Googled it, and uh, it, the Google search led me to Pinterest, and I'm like, oh, these are cool, like this is a little shed and colorful and everything, just, you know, something that I would be interested in as Nicole. <laughs> um, I learned my lines, I went in, I did the first audition, and it was no big deal. You know, I thought it was a, a cute concept but I again I do this all the time and so I audition and I leave it I just I don't even think about them again because otherwise it makes me neurotic and then I got the call back I'm like okay cool you know I go in and I saw uh, an actor that I know and I was hoping that he would we could go in together so that he could be my husband since I knew him um, but I got paired up with someone else who I had seen him on TV, but I, I didn't know him. He seemed nice enough. We greeted each other. We went into the room and we did our audition and left. And I was done with it until I got the call. 
And same thing. It was just like every other audition, every other job. This one shot at the Rose Bowl in Pasadena. So when we pulled up to the Rose Bowl separately, I pulled up there and I saw a, a she shed on fire. <laughs> it was just flaming in the parking lot. I'm like, okay, well, this is cool. So I watched that for a while. Then I had to get ready. And the guy, I, I was curious to see who they cast as my husband because I didn't know. And it was the guy that I auditioned with. Um, his name is Reggie Corelli. He's better known as She Shed Victor now. Uh, they shuttled us both to uh, a backyard of someone's house in Pasadena. And that's where we shot our part. So we weren't actually in front of a flaming, a mm. flaming uh, She Shed. Uh-huh. We were in front of a tent with moving lights in it. Yeah, and they superimposed the she shed over it. But it was just like any other commercial until it blew up. <laughs> like it, something about it re- resonated with people. It made people laugh. And I knew it was big when people strangers started yelling she shed at me <laughs> on the street. <laughs> I had no idea how, how big it was. I stream all of my TV. So I didn't, I actually didn't see it that often. And I heard later, yeah, it's on like it's every other commercial all day long, every day. I had no idea. Well, it finally happened, Zachary. Somebody burned down my she shed. Nobody burned down your she shed, Cheryl. Well, my she shed's on fire. Your she shed was struck by lightning. Zachary, is my she shed covered by State Farm? Your she shed's covered, Cheryl. You hear that, Victor? I'm getting a new she shed, she shed. Yeah, and somebody said, well, you know, you're like the where's the beef lady now. And I'm just like, am I really? Am I really? Because I remember that, and I remember how big that was. But it feels different when you're inside of it. It feels different from inside. Because I'm just, you know, I'm just me. Like, I'm just, I just went to work, you know? Yeah, and I don't get the impression that it defines you at all. It's not going to typecast you in any way. No, no, I don't think so. Um, I've, I've worked a lot since then. And I had worked a lot before then. I think maybe had that been the only thing that I'd done, um, then people would think that's all I could do. But I've, I've been around for a while. Yeah. And did, did having that viral commercial success, did that lead up to you launching your own program of Sister President? Or, or would that have come about no matter what? That, that would have come about no matter what. Um, I'm always looking for ways to keep life interesting for myself and that includes um that includes work life and auditioning and saying other people's words uh, and a lot of times in in roles that aren't that big you know i haven't done anything that's that's that i feel is like allowed me to go um as deeply as i would would like to go into a character it's just usually you know one day here one day there a couple days here but as an artist, there's more that I want to express, things that I see going on around me, and I'm constantly writing. I'm always writing something. And uh, the courage to go ahead and, and crowdfund for it, I think that was an outgrowth of the popularity of the, the She Shed commercial, mm. because all of a sudden people knew who, you know, they know who I am, and, and some of them like me, <laughs> you know, I'm like, well, um, maybe I can get this project off the ground and it doesn't have to be something else that I've written that lives in a binder. And that's, 
yeah. So it facilitated things, that's for sure. But I would have, I would have found a way to do it anyway. Hmm. Is Sister President the first show you've written that has actually been filmed, or did any of your previous projects? It was. It's the first one that I filmed that had a budget. Yeah. <laughs> um, I did another one before. It's on YouTube. Um, it has it has a, a curse word in the title, so I won't say it. But it's shooting <laughs> the ass. <laughs> um, and that came about uh, with the, I had two friends. You know how you get on these. They have a like a, a group text or group chat. And I had two friends that we would, te- at that time, we would text each other all the time, like all throughout the day, whatever we saw, whatever observation, joke, whatever. And we would also have um, just interesting conversations about life and things that we were going through. And I thought about, you know, okay, some of these conversations are, I find really interesting. I wonder if other people would too. So I started writing scripts. I developed characters for each of them that were really close, and, and myself, that were close to who we are, but not exactly, and, uh, and wrote, wrote a comedy, shooting the, shooting the blank. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's on YouTube, um, and it was no budget. <laughs> we shot it on uh, iPods. And there were just the three of us and the director, who was also the cameraman. <laughs> uh, but Sister President actually had a full crew, a budget, and yeah, it was the, the biggest undertaking that undertaking that I've I've had so far. Great. Well, I'll include links to it and such. But do you want to give a quick synopsis of the concept? I would love to. Sister President is about two sisters who are very different. One is very reserved and the other one is outgoing and outspoken. They criticize the the incumbent president at a town hall meeting, a virtual town hall meeting, and he challenges them to run the country. But there's a catch. If they don't meet his approval rating, then they're going to end up in prison. (laughs) And they they agree to it. Um, The outspoken sister agrees to it and kind of drags the other one along. So it's about two two, uh, middle-aged Black women at the helm of the United States with no experience and figuring it out on the fly and seeing what happens. (laughs) It's very funny. I I think it picks up steam as it goes along, too. The later episodes, to me, were, the, were my favorites. Oh, mine, too. Mine, too, actually. Yeah. Was it inspired by, was Sister President inspired by the Trump era at all? Or was it a reaction to Trump or no? It, it was. I was so disturbed. <laughs> I was so disturbed. Uh, when Donald Trump got elected, I didn't think it was actually going to happen. It did. And I was dazed for a while. And um, friends and family members, people that I talked to felt the same way. Uh, and I just started writing those, writing some of those thoughts down. And um, it look, looked like, okay, I have something here. I don't know if it's a script or a story or, or what this is, but um, pretty soon different characters were distinct. And so I formed it into a pilot. I had some friends read it. And originally, the incumbent president um, that they criticized, his name was Ronald <laughs> Trump. 
character name. And friends were like, uh, that's a little too on the nose. You might wanna, <laughs> you might wanna change that. Um, so yeah, they were definitely inspired by current events. Great. It's good that you didn't make it too dependent on Trump, though, because it can still have a life after he, fingers crossed, leaves office next week. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, I think I got lucky on that one. We were close to being done editing. And uh, do you remember last year, like last, maybe early summer, when nobody could find Kim Jong-un? Mm, yeah. Do you remember that when people like he, he's we think he's he's dead, you know, yeah. <laughs> all kinds of theories. And so I was freaking out because we took so long to edit that I was like, oh, no, this man is going to die. Because I mentioned Kim, <laughs> Kim there's a bit of him in in the script. And I'm like, this man is going to die. And then it's going to be in poor taste. Like, we have to get like, I just had to go lie down because <laughs> I was just like, we did all this work and now it's not going to be relevant anymore or it's going to be inappropriate. Yeah. <laughs> That's the pitfall of doing anything that ties into current events. Yes. Yep. Now I know. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to, to see what thoughts you have on diverse representation and media and entertainment. This morning I was thinking ahead to this. I was remembering back. I grew up in a small town in Michigan with only one black kid in my high school and one black one black kid in my church. And... So most of the black people I saw were on TV. And I was thinking how important that is then. Yeah, it's really important. Um, Going to school in Iowa, uh, I remember there were a lot of kids that were from smaller towns in Iowa or other places in the Midwest, and they had never met, met black people. I didn't find any of them to be malicious, but there were some some comments that would I would just be taken aback at like like you know I don't understand somebody was mesmerized by the fact that the inside of my hand is a different color from the outside of my hand, and I had I would never think of that. I'm like it's a different type of skin. You don't tan on the inside of your hand like it's just different, you know. Um, but if you don't know, you don't know. So um, luckily, I didn't meet with with a lot of malice. Um, there were some incidents. It was just um, just 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 ignorance from not having been exposed. Um, I think it is very important uh, to for everybody to see themselves and for us to see one another, because um, then you get used to get used to the fact that there are different types of people in the world. And honestly, we're more alike than we are different. Once you really sit down and you talk, start talking to people, there are more, more similarities than there are differences. And that's a way for us to unite, um, you, you unite, you know, th- this country. I don't know where we're going right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> I think I had a blind spot to racism growing up because I didn't see it. There wasn't any opportunity for it. I would hear about it some on television, so at least I know it had existed. But I think that tied into becoming a young Republican. Was Reagan, Reagan was mm-hmm. the great president on TV, and then I didn't see much injustice in my personal life or my town. So it wasn't really till moving to Nashville around age 30 that then I saw, you know, what's going on, what what life is actually like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. 
I was sheltered. I was pretty sheltered. Um, again, like I said, my, my family, they really um, just kind of built a, a hedge of protection around me, um, all the kids. And when things would happen in school, you know, a teacher does something that's unfair. My great-grandmother especially would always say, um, is, she, is, she, is she colored or is she white? And, you know, and I would wonder, well, why does that matter? Like, what, what difference does that make? Um, but I picked up that, oh, I'm going to be, um, I might be treated unfairly because, because I'm Black. But it didn't happen to me for a long time. It, uh, um, yeah, I think I was, a, I was probably eight or nine the first time somebody yelled the N-word. And even then, I was just kind of like, why'd they say that? Like, it, it, it didn't hit me personally because that just wasn't part of my world. It was just like, what are you talking about? You might as well call me a table. I'm not that either. Like, why are you saying, why are you even saying that? But as I got out into the world and experienced, um, you know, people who thought I shouldn't be in college, you know, or, or assumed that I was an athlete, you know, I, oh, you're here on an athletic scholarship. Why, why, you know, or, or in rhetoric class when, we're reading a book and there's street gangs in the book and people are turning to ask me questions. And I'm like, I'm in here with you. Do I look like I'm in a gang? Why are you asking me? <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Well, yeah. What is the Live True Project? And what are your goals with that? The Live True Project is my production company. And the name comes from um, the San Sanford Meisner uh, technique. Sanford Meisner was an acting teacher. I've heard that name. I've heard the phrase Meisner technique, but don't know anything about it. Okay. I, I studied the Meisner technique for two years and its central tenet is um, acting is the ability to live truthfully under the given imaginary circumstances. In a script, you're given the circumstances, you're given a name, you're given, given a time period, and my job as an actor is to live truthfully. Um, studying that technique changed me as an actress. It changed me as a person. Um, it, it taught me how to read other people's behavior and also get to the heart of what's true for me in any given moment. Hmm. Um, and so I wanted my, the name of my company, The Live True Project, to, to pay homage to that technique because it really has um, cha changed my life. What I want to do with my production company is to continue to uh, to write, to write projects for people who don't usually get to tell their stories. Because I'm a middle I'm a middle aged woman, um, middle aged black woman, bigger than a bread basket. <laughs> you know, I'm six feet tall, um, and I'm you know, I'm, a, I'm a large woman. A lot of times we get stereotyped, you know, we, we have a hard time getting cast at all. I have friends who, who are gay, um, gay, lesbian. Um, I want to, I'm writing stories for them. Like, I just want to tell the truth, um, be honest, tell stories about people that we don't see on TV or on, on screen every day. That's, that's my mission. That's great. Wow, that's wonderful. Thank you. you said something amazing a minute ago that the Meisner technique is about inhabiting a certain role of 
a character's place and time mm -hmm. and then living truthfully from that. It struck me that that's kind of a metaphor for all of life, where a lot of spirituality teaches that that our souls are assigned or choose to incarnate in a certain place and time and character and go from there. Yeah, yeah, that's the truth. So is would you say acting can be a spiritual practice? Yeah, yes. And I think that's what I felt when I first got involved in theater. I think looking looking back, I didn't know it then, but I, I just felt it felt like church. And I remember saying that to my mother and she was like, there's no God there. What are you talking about? And I'm like, I don't I can't tell you. It feels spiritual to me. And and it is because, um, you know, our our spirits know the truth. They, they know what's true and what isn't. Yeah. And what comes from the heart reaches the heart. That's why when you see we see bad acting, melodra melodramatic acting, you just kind of like, eh, OK, yeah, I see you crying like I feel nothing, you know, but when it's real, you know. Our spirits recognize truth. And you don't have to say anything that might uh, implicate your family or you don't embarrass yourself in front of your family. What has your journey, journey been growing up in church to where you where you are now spiritually? How, how would you describe that? Are you asking me how much of a heathen I am now? Is <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, I have moved away from uh, dogma um, because I think it it's it serves to separate people more than than to unite um, and more towards spirituality where I, I pray every day like multiple times a day and it's not a formal prayer where I have to get down on my knees and pray or you know anything like that it's just it's just communing communing with with God, you know, as, as I understand God to be. Um, I don't, I feel like personally, I feel that God is in control of everything um, and nothing happens unless God, uh, and some people see it as the universe, you know, the universe has, there's certain laws in the universe. I, use, I can use them both interchangeably. It doesn't, I don't get all up in arms about the words that people use. Um, but I, I am spiritual, so I'm glad I had the foundation that I had, but I've moved away from strict rules and dogma and, you know, um, that sort of thing. And, and sometimes my mother does call me a heathen. <laughs> <laughs> with, with love, with love. <laughs> uh, I think you and I have had a similar journey there. Like I said, I had a Southern Baptist preacher grandfather. And we've we've reached a similar place. I think that's partly why I enjoy following you on Twitter so much, besides all the anti-Trump commentary. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Well, when I read read your book, The Dirty Parts of the Bible, um, it it resonated with me. I was like, oh, I, I like this. I really like and it's it's a parable. Like I just thought it was really clever. It 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 can stand on its own as just a story you know but then when you look at it and you're like oh it's okay this is i see what you're doing here sam i see what you got going on yeah <laughs> well thanks i <laughs> i really appreciate your kind words about that book thanks a lot do you uh do you practice anything like meditation or visualization or positive mind techniques uh i meditate off and on 
I, I haven't been consistent. Like I'll, I'll meditate every day for a month and then I won't meditate for three months. <laughs> and, and I always intend to get back to it, but I, I just need to set a time and do it. I have a hard time with that. I have a hard time with, with um, regimented, a regimented schedule. Mm-hmm. Same, same um, here. You do? Okay. <laughs> like, I have no excuse at all. It's just, it's just, you know, I fall off the wagon and then I get back on at some point. Visualization, I feel like I, I live in visualizations most of the time. Um, I'm in my head a lot. Hmm. And uh, I've always seen things slightly askew <laughs> from, from the way that, that most people see them, which is, which is sometimes good. Like, I, I, I'm good with it. You know, I have a, a rich interior life. You know, the inside of my head is really colorful. There are a lot of people in there, you know, a lot of characters. But in dealing with the outside world, it can make things difficult sometimes in terms of communication because I'm I'm seeing things in my head and sometimes I'm not conveying them properly. Yeah, I think that's, I live in visualization. Are you a secret introvert? I am very much an introvert. <laughs> very much so. Yeah, like I feel I, I this is a horrible joke, but <laughs> I always say that um during this pandemic where we're all, you know, inside and you hear people saying, "Oh, I'm stuck inside the house." I don't feel stuck. Like I feel like I was I was created for a time such as this, <laughs> you know, where where I'm I'm in here, I'm drawing, I paint, um I write. It's like like an artist's dream, except for the part where people are getting sick and dying. Mm, yeah. Now I got to think of a happier note for a last question. I oh, know. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, hmm. Well, we are going to get through this. We will. There's a lot going on right now. Um, I think the only way we come through this is if if we elevate, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't see, and I tweeted this either yesterday or the day before, I don't see how we make it through this with mm-hmm. the status quo. We can't, we're going to destroy ourselves and each other. Um, as horrible as it is, uh, that it, that it took getting to this point for changes to happen. I think we're going to have to, um, see and make changes in the way that we live and the way that we deal with one another um, in order for healing and reconciliation to take place, we have to. And, and I, I believe that there, that there are enough of us who want to do that, that we will. Great. I hope so too. Well, I appreciate all you're doing to put positivity out there and to affect change in the world. So it's really been an honor to finally meet you and speak with you. Thank you. You too. Uh, thank you for, for having me here today. And uh, it's good to see your face, like, you know, for <laughs> real. <laughs> yeah, I've, I think I've aged about 10 or 15 years during the four years of Trump. I was thinking if I was an actor, that would be a dangerous thing. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, unless, unless I'm writing for you. <laughs> and then I, I, I would write something for Thanks for listening to Living from the Soul. If you enjoyed this episode, 
please subscribe, rate, and review. This is an ad-free podcast supported by my books, which are available at samtorode.com. The theme music was created by Gideon Tarode.